The Hub is a community. Manuscript, book, and print cultures. Stamping problems. You are listening to a podcast by the Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. The Hub is a space celebrating ten years through the community. Created by Carl Sinclair. The Hub is about impact. The Hub is for everyone. Hub in Dublin. My name is Eve Patton. I'm the director of the Hub which is Trinity's Research Institute for the Arts and Humanities. I know that many of you are joining us from around the world for the first time. So let me just tell you what we do in the Hub. Uh, here we, show, we showcase and support the research that's done across the arts and humanities disciplines in Trinity. And as much as possible, we bring that research to a wider audience through our public humanities program and our many national and international partnerships. Uh, all this is a way of saying that what we want to do is make our research meaningful to the wider world of politics, culture, ideology, and society. If you were able at the moment to take a walk through the Trinity campus past the Trinity Long Room Hub building, you would see inscribed on our large public facing window words from the Irish poet Ivan Boland, reminding us that the duty of the citizen is to tell the story of the nation, but also to record its contradictions. Uh, and we take that as a valuable keynote for the work that we do as scholars in the arts and humanities here in college. It's in that context that I am incredibly proud that the Trinity Long Room Hub is hosting the launch this evening of a dynamic new venture, the Trinity Centre for Resistance Studies. This timely initiative is thanks to the imagination and the tenacity of my colleague, Dr. Balaj Apoor, and my warmest congratulations to him and his team. Uh, I will hand over uh, in a few seconds to Balaj, who's also going to introduce our guest speaker, Professor Ruth Ben-Ghiat, welcome Ruth, and also uh, the Vice Provost of Trinity and the former director, in fact, of the Trinity Long Room Hub, Professor Jürgen Barkoff, who's also joining us this evening. There will be time later on for Q&A, so if you have questions and comments, you'll be able to put these into the Q&A panel at the bottom of your screen, or if you're on Facebook, into the questions panel. Uh, and of course, if you're on Twitter, uh, please do tweet using the handle uh, at TLRR Hub and using the hashtag Hub Matters. We'll put those details for you in the chat panel. Uh, but for now, let me warmly welcome the director of the new Centre for Resistance Studies, Balaj Apoor. Balaj. Thank you very much for uh, the kind introduction. Eve, and uh, let me also welcome everyone in the audience um, uh, at our event to, to launch the Center for Resistance Studies. I understand that over 300 people registered for this event from all around the world. Uh, so this uh, is very impressive. We are very impressed and of course, deeply humbled uh, by that. Hopefully you won't uh, disappoint. Um, I mean, having so many people in the uh, audience and in attendance is certainly one of the advantages of our Zoomified civilization. Um, of course, the disadvantage is that we won't be able to meet you uh, in person for some time, but this will hopefully 
change in the near future. I only have a few minutes to introduce the center, so I'll, I'll keep it very short and very, very brief and concise. If you have any questions um, about us, about our goals, um, about members um, and about our ambitions, I would be happy to, of course, give you more details. So feel free to get in touch with us uh, by email. Uh, of course, plans, we have many um, and ambitions too. And in, in general, um, I could group those ambitions and plans into four different uh, categories, research, teaching, building a collection and outreach. Um, as a research center, uh, our primary goal would of course be uh, to promote um, uh, and organize academic events of a traditional nature, you could say conferences, workshops, discussion panels, seminars, and so on, to foster academic collaboration, but also to develop individual and uh, joint research projects. Through our research uh, activities, we aim to promote a multidisciplinary understanding and interpretation uh, of the notion of resistance, but also its cognate notions, including resilience, opposition, dissent, protest, subversion, nonconformism, and so on. The list certainly goes on. The emphasis probably will be on uh, the concept of resistance, that very complex, very loaded, and also often romanticized uh, notion. But we also hope to explore related concepts, synonyms, and cognate notions, and indeed the so-called gray zones where the boundaries of resilience, accommodation, and even collaboration uh, are sometimes blurred. We also believe in research-led teaching and the uh, importance of encouraging the development of critical thinking in universities. Therefore, we would very much like to be involved in teaching activities as a research center, which is somewhat unusual. Now, the main reason for this is that the problems in the world that this center aims to respond to uh, are not short-term crisis. They're not going to go away in the next few years. These are long-term and indeed recurring issues. Therefore, of course, preparing younger generations for the inevitable challenges that they are going to face uh, is, I think, of crucial importance. And of course, one could hardly find a better theme through which critical thinking could be developed than the theme of resistance. So we plan to develop modules at undergraduate and postgraduate level, a module um, which is, is known to colleagues in Trinity, a Trinity elective is certainly on the cards, uh, but we do hope to, to build up a master's program, uh, hopefully in the not so, not so distant future in resistance studies. Our third goal, third goal is to create and gradually build up uh, a collection of primary sources on the theme of resistance. And this is something I'm personally very excited about. Some of our uh, members already have material uh, on excavated gold mines, basically uh, stored in shoe boxes uh, that we do hope to digitize uh, in the future with the aim of making them available to researchers, external researchers, of, of course, and bring researchers here to Trinity to study resistance. But at the same time, we also uh, plan to build an oral history collection, primarily in the form of interviews made with guest speakers, academics, activists, and so on, about their conception and about their perception of resistance. Since the motivation to create this center is as much civic as academic, we do plan to engage with various outreach activities and build connections with the non-academic sector, governmental and non-governmental organizations 
alike. We do not simply plan to invite such organizations to attend events that we design, which is the traditional way of engaging, I suppose, with non uh, with non-academic non institutions, but we would like to uh, actually involve them in designing those activities and in, in, in the planning of those activities as well. Um, and hopefully that will work out. And finally, just a few words of gratitude. Uh, there were lots of people who were involved in the creation of the center, but there is simply no time to thank them all here individually. So I would just like to thank everyone. Uh, briefly, all my colleagues and friends who took the time to chat with me and others about resistance over coffee, beer, lunch in the past two or three years. You know who you are. I certainly knew who, we, who you are. Uh, and we certainly wouldn't be here uh, without you. And from now on, you can officially start whispering to uh, random people on the street that I'm with the resistance. Um, so, of course, the Long Room Hub and its directors deserve um, a special mention. Past and present directors, Jane O'Meara and Eve Patton, uh, because uh, they recognized the, uh, the potential in this initiative, and they were the ones who agreed to uh, give a home uh, to the center. So we are uh, grateful to the Long Room Hub and, and its directors. And of course, finally, I would like to thank uh, uh, all the panelists today, our speaker, the vice provost and the director of the Long Room Hub for their incredible flexibility and support in the last few, we few weeks. Uh, these were trying times, so thank you for, for your support uh, again. And with that, I would like to uh, invite vice provost uh, Jürgen Barkov to officially launch the center. Thank you. Thank you very much, um, Balash, and good evening to everybody. It is a great honor and pleasure for me to be with you today to launch the new Center for Resistance Studies here in Trinity College Dublin, a research center that studies the manifold forms of political, societal, and cultural resistance, its motivations, its political, social, and ethical backgrounds and conditions, its triggers, its methods, its dynamics, its various forms of organization and protest, its aims and objectives, its effects and impacts is a very timely and very important undertaking for our university and for the world we live in. We only need to open the papers of our, or our laptop, switch on the radio or the television to see how topical such a center is and how many objects of study there are. We are perhaps particularly aware currently of Myanmar, where brave women and men from increasingly all sections of society risk their lives and lose their lives to protest against another military coup, to resist against another military dictatorship in their country and demand freedom for Aung San Suu Kyi, who for a long time was an icon of peaceful resistance. A year ago, at the onset of the pandemic, the world was watching how the students and young people of Hong Kong, with some exchange students from Trinity among them, rose to protect their civic liberties. And if we look closer to home, we think of the ongoing fight against the rise of autocratic rule and illiberal democracies uh, on our continent and within the European Union in countries like Poland or Hungary. To study these movements, to bring greater understanding of what makes them succeed and fail, supports through academic insight their fight for a more democratic, more equitable, more just and more peaceful world. But it is equally important to study and understand forms of resistance that we do not sympathize or identify with and that have the potential to do very real harm to society. In recent week and weeks, anti-vaccine demonstrations on the street 
of Dublin or Cork might come to mind, or indeed the storm of the capital incited by Donald Trump are forms of resistance that require attention, careful study and analysis. The establishment of a Center for Resistance Studies fits very well with the values and ambitions of our university. To act responsibly is one of our, the four graduate attributes which are at the heart of our curricula, of all our curricula, and at the heart of our aspirations for our graduates as active citizens. Our strategic plan, Community and Connection, which was launched almost to the day a year ago on the 10th of March 2020, has as the first of its four core missions, civic action. I quote, through our teaching, research and public engagement, we courageously advance the cause of a pluralistic, just and sustainable society. In this strategic plan, we also commit to increase research that supports and underpins the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals and the work of the Center will support a number of them, most notably perhaps Goal 16, promote peaceful and inclusive societies for sustainable development, provide access to justice for all and build effective, accountable and inclusive institutions at all levels. A Center that brings together researchers from a wide variety of humanities and social, societies, this, so social sciences disciplines also fits very well with our commitment to support and develop challenge-based interdisciplinary research that harnesses perspectives, methodologies, and insights from across the disciplines to tackle the big questions of our time. It is therefore particularly fitting that this new Center for Resistance Studies finds a home in the Trinity Lorum Hub, our Arts and Humanities Research Institute, which since its foundations has been committed in so many ways, both to interdisciplinarity and to public engagement. During my own tenure as its director, I had the pleasure to initiate through generous philanthropic support our public humanities initiative, which since then has been taken to another level under the next director, Jane Olmeyer, when the Trinity Longroom Hub became a key driver of the Crisis of Democracy project, a global humanities institute project funded by the consortium of Humanities Centers and Institutes and the A.W. Mellon Foundation. I understand that under the Hub's current director, Eve Patton, new and exciting follow-on research projects on the future of democracy are under development. So there is a great context for the new center in the Hub. Part of this great context is the Horizon 2020 flagship project Shape ID on interdisciplinary practices in Europe, won and led by Jane Olmeyer that has great potential to support and underpin the interdisciplinary approach the new center is taking. Allow me in closing to mention a personal reason why I am so delighted about this development and to be here with you tonight. Balash Apor developed his first ideas of a center for resistance studies while he was director of the Center for European Studies in the School of Languages, Literatures and Cultural Studies. At the time, I was his head of school and was immediately convinced and excited when he told me about the plans. I felt that the emergence of resistance studies out of a Center for European Studies was most fitting, given that we owe the biggest political transformation of our lifetimes on the continent of Europe to the most successful and peaceful resistance movement that in the late 80s swept away the Iron Curtain, brought down the Berlin Wall, 
liberated Central Europe from communism and led to the accession of the Central European countries and the Baltic states to the EU in 2004. Some of Balash's own research is devoted to this topic, most prominently perhaps through his involvement as PI in the Horizon 20 Courage Project, Cultural Connections, Understanding the Cultural Heritage of Dissent in the Former Socialist Countries. In 2004, I was director of our Center for European Studies, and we marked and celebrated the EU enlargement and the homecoming of Central Europe, if you want, by creating a post in Central and European cultural history, the position that Balash Apra now holds. The, what happened was that the then vice provost threatened to raid our reserves, so I thought, let's spend them on something worthwhile. He, not, not, not that the vice provost ever did our reserves, no vice provost would ever do that, but, um, but it was money well spent. So I take a bit of credit for what we are celebrating here tonight. But seriously, I want to congratulate and thank you, Balash, and all your colleagues for driving this initiative and for bringing it to this point. It is my great privilege to launch the new Center for Resistance Studies in Trinity College and to wish it every success. Thank you very much, Jürgen, for, for the very kind words and for the, for the personal touch. Um, uh, thank you, uh, indeed. Um, and now I'd like to uh, introduce our keynote speaker uh, today, um, whom actually I met uh, as part of the Crisis of Democracy initiative uh, at, a, at an event in New York, which was organized uh, jointly by the Trinity Longroom Hub and the Heyman Center. So that's where we met. So everything comes together. It's all connected, you can say. And it is certainly a, a great pleasure to, to introduce uh, Professor Ruth Bengiat uh, to you. Um, Ruth is a professor of history and Italian studies at NYU, New York uh, University, and uh, she is author of the newly published book, Strongman from Mussolini to the Present, that was published in November 2020. She's primarily a cultural historian of uh, Italian fascism and has written extensively uh, on related topics. Uh, her books, uh, Fascist Modernities and Italian Fascism Fascism's Empire Cinema are well acclaimed uh, with her book on fascist cinema actually winning the Edinburgh Geta Prize for best book on Italian culture in 2019. But Ruth is also a public intellectual uh, who, in the best sense of the word, of course, uh, who comments and writes for CNN and other news sites on a regular basis, mostly on issues, of course, in relation to authoritarian leaders uh, and propaganda. Her new book, uh, the one I mentioned, Strongman, is, is of course the main reason uh, why we decided to invite her, uh, well, um, virtually at least, uh, hopefully she'll have the chance to come over in person at some stage as well. And of course, this is an incredibly timely uh, volume published in the midst of the American uh, elections. <laughs> uh, and this was, of course, the first book uh, that interprets or interpreted the Trump presidency from the perspective of a historian, uh, and of course, in the context of, of a whole century of authoritarian uh, leaders. But most importantly, the book reflects on resistance to authoritarian rule and presents historical examples of how strongmen could be resisted. Um, I can't really think of a more relevant topic to launch the Center for Resistance Studies with. Uh, so without further ado, I invite Professor Ruth Bengiat to take the virtual floor 
uh, and deliver her keynote lecture. And we will have some time for questions and answers. So if you have any questions, uh, please put them in the Q&A box and I'll try to um, collect them after the lecture. All right, Ruth, the floor is yours. Thank you. I'm, I'm so happy to be speaking to you. I was so excited to hear about the launch of the center. It couldn't be more timely. So thank you, Vice Provost Barkov and Professors Apoor and Patton for this invitation. Ours is an age of strongmen rule and the recently released uh, report of Freedom House entitled Democracy Under Siege says the balance internationally has now shifted to favor tyranny and activists, resistors are lacking uh, ever more lacking international support. They conclude gloomily the long democratic recession is deepening. Yet ours is also an age of mass protest. In 2019, before the pandemic curtailed group activities and forced lockdowns in many countries, more people were protesting than ever before. The Center for Strategic and International Studies starts its March 2020 report on this subject by stating that, quote, we are living in an age of global mass protests that are historically unprecedented in frequency, scope, and size. In Chile, protests over economic inequality were the largest since the 1980s mass demonstrations against the Pinochet regime. In Hong Kong, a generation of young people, including middle-class professionals, took to the streets before a crackdown forced many resistance, resistors into exile or in prison. And as I speak, pro-democracy protests continue in Myanmar against the military coup. Now, resistance has always been in dialogue with the methods strongmen have used to quell dissent, and that's been true over a century. So I want to start just briefly by reviewing these. And we might think of authoritarian repression of resistance uh, as a continuum, starting with kind of low level anxiety and hypervigilance caused in everyone by cultures of threat and surveillance. All regimes have the goal of fostering self-censorship. So they'd like people to uh, feel so, uh, feel so anxious that they comply in advance. They, they do the work of the state for them. Now you go up to public acts of persecution of state enemies by paramilitaries or others to make an example. This is an effective and favored autocratic custom making example and it's used with elites um, and it's used of course on the street where people can see others being beaten up or, or worse to show that no one is safe. And there's a certain uh, logic of randomness to observers, uh, which is also very frightening. And of course, this violence scales up to torture, mass repression, and arriving in some cases at genocide of targeted groups. Now, mass repression certainly continues, but the old practice of warehousing enemies in penal colonies, prisons and camps, and inheritance from colonial occupations prevails in the 20th, 21st century. Today in Turkey, in China, and other countries, there's mass confinement of state enemies far from prying eyes. Today's repression is a mix of older instruments, including going after exiles, who have often been very important in resistance efforts where there's a real dictatorship, the old one-party states, because they have the 
uh, ability to criticize, to even organize uh, military actions to take place in the home country and organize other kinds of resistance campaigns. Um, Turkish basketball star and Erdogan critic, Enes uh, Kantor, who's been in America playing for teams since 2011, became stateless when uh, Erdogan revoked his passport in 2017, branding him as a terrorist. The strongman has always pursued his bodies abroad, using secret police to gun them down. That's, that was what Mussolini, Pinochet, and Gaddafi did. Uh, kidnap them. We don't hear enough about uh, how Erdogan kidnaps uh, people who are dissenters uh, from 18 uh, foreign countries or poison them. Uh, Putin's method both used in, the, in Russia and with dissenters abroad. And the 2018 murder of the Saudi Arabian journalist Jamal Khashoggi in the Saudi consulate in Istanbul is in this tradition. I start with this grim history because the map of repression is also the map of resistance to it. And we've arguably, arguably focused more on the former, on repression than the latter, which is why the Center for Resistance Studies launching today is so important. Resistance has a history and it's one that should be better known. So what I'm gonna do here and is isolate some episodes and draw some trajectories or genealogies that deserve more attention or offer lessons to what's been effective in resisting abuses of power. And I also wanna draw attention, I can't, don't have time to go into this, uh, in, to what in the history of resistance has been most memorialized in media and narrative and has created some iconic images of resistance struggles. So I wanna share my screen, I have a lot of images. Okay. So think of images that recur throughout uh, a century of individual facing an intimidating uh, line of military or law enforcement, Tiananmen Square, uh, 1989, uh, Ferguson protests in the States against police brutality. And of course, the Chinese state prohibits mention of the first example of you know, these, these images capsulize the individual resistor against the state. Or another image that recurs and practice that recurs, the powerful um, act of people joining hands to form human chains against oppression. And this is very important because it, it captures uh, those, it, it crystallizes those horizontal bonds of civil society that authoritarians always do their best to rupture. They would like only vertical uh, ties from the people to the leader to prevail. So they use secret police and you know, make people inform and their families do everything possible. Many of you are very familiar with this to break those bonds. So having these human chains is extremely powerful um, message of resilience. So this is the Baltic Way protest. Sorry, this is a very small image. Uh, also, in the Berlusconi years, very interesting uh, examples of resistance uh, to someone who didn't wreck democracy, Berlusconi, but degraded it. The Girotondi, which is after the merry-go-round, uh, people would encircle endangered buildings, the Ministry of Justice here. And in Hong Kong, a human chain, uh, as part of those 2019 protests, paid homage to the Baltic Way. Now, 
of course, resistance is also the history of what people don't do. And in societies predicated on compliance, refusing to act can send a powerful message. So I just want to uh, introduce this category of, of non-action as resistance, not listening to the radio when the leader speaks, not sending your children to state youth activities. All of these had repercussions. And women have refused to become the tools of state demographic agendas. They've declined to procreate for the state, instead sometimes risking prison to obtain birth control and have abortions. And long ago, Luisa Passerini uh, did a book on uh, this and other um, through oral histories uh, of what happened under Italian fascism. Now, of course, the most visible res uh, resistance has been armed resistance in a way. Around the world, resistors from outlawed movements or parties have opposed the regime with weapons, have lived underground, cut off from family and friends. And this is the guerrilla fighter, the I iconic image. And armed resistance against early strongmen developed as an outgrowth of anti-fascism, culminating in the flashpoints of the Spanish Civil War, which drew combatants from around the world, and of course, the resistance movements uh, during World War II. Yet I'd like to point out here the need to integrate the history of anti-colonial resistance. And I'm gonna give the example of oppositions uh, to Italian fascist occupation in Libya in particular, although it was also Ethiopia. Uh, we need to know more about uh, the resistance to Italian occupation of Ethiopia as well. Now in Libya, resistance had a fateful history that continued after fascism fell where the fascists committed genocide in 1930-31 before Hitler even came to power, sending non-combatant Bedouin to uh, camps that were built in the desert uh, and 60% and, you know, of them died um, to break the resistance in the Eastern region of Cyrenaica. And in particular, the fascists created a martyr by hanging the uh, guerrilla leader and spiritual leader, uh, Omar al-Mukhtar. And this is, an, this is a picture before he was executed in front of 20,000 of his people. This is setting an example on a big scale. And poems and songs honoring uh, al-Mukhtar circulated among Lib Libyan families, including Gaddafi's. And so in the book, um, Gaddafi is my only non-right-wing authoritarian, but he's in there because I wanted to show these trajectories and Gaddafi modeled himself in part on uh, al-Mukhtar as a freedom fighter and had him in mind as he planned his coup. And then uh, part of his agenda was to expel, um, his agenda of purification of imperialists from Libya was to expel remaining Italians from, from Libya. And then of course, we all know he stayed there for two years, he became a very brutal dictator. And when the revolution broke out to remove him, Al-Mukhtar's image surfaced again as a resistance symbol. So, so this is just one of these um, trajectories that, that is fruitful to explore. Nationalist historiographies around resistance, such as that of World War II, have sometimes obscured these global histories. And it's part of not integrating the history of, of anti-colonialism well enough into colonialism and anti-colonialism into national histories. And I'm trained in Italian history, but I did not realize until I did the research for strongmen that armed resistance in Italy, the, the famous World War II resistance, which was so key to establishing a post-fascist identity in Italy, 
included fighters of over 50 nations, among them Libyans, Eritreans, uh, um, Ethiopians, and other survivors of Italian imperial occupation. There were also professional insurgents, such as the communist guerrilla Ilio Baruntini. And this, he has an interesting trajectory if we want to think about the history of resistance. He trained with the Red Army in Russia, the Maoist in Manchuria, then he fought in the Spanish Civil War, and then he went to Ethiopia to train uh, anti-fascist Ethiopian guerrillas. Then he returned home during World War II <coughs> and during the resistance from 1943 to 45, he became Commander Dario, that was his code name, of a resistance unit in Emilia-Romagna. But that's a very interesting trajectory that uh, you know, is global. So I think we can do, if we're thinking about the future of writing the history of resistance, I think these kinds of um, trajectories are important. Now, most resistance in strongman states is nonviolent <clears throat> and unarmed protest has been most, among the most effective. And the core of resistance has always been human bodies, uh, people claim, reclaiming public space and making a different nation, not the strongman's nation, visible and audible. Individual actions designed to be seen by the public, <clears throat> often on a very small scale, like those of the White Rose in Nazi Germany, they are so valuable because they break through the screen of official media and offer models of resistance that can be transformative, particularly if the regime is starting to teeter, if there's some kind of dissatisfaction is rising or there's a losing war, an economic downturn, uh, and there's some momentum. And they seed the terrain for further mass nonviolent protests that can grow when the leader's authority starts to erode due to these kinds of um, social or economic or military um, downturns. <clears throat> a critical mass of visible protesters can remind also international funders and the strongman's domestic enemy, sorry, domestic allies that enabling him can have consequences. Now, strongmen use the public's fear to display their power to regiment bodies and minds, right? With gymnastics exercises, rallies, all the things we know. Resistance activities on a grand scale reclaim that space from the state and speak back to the leader's corruption, exploitation, and violence. Such protests can be joyful collective occasions, such as the anti-Putin rallies in the winter of 2011, 2012. They become spaces of warmth and solidarity, despite the cold in this case. Now, protests can also be stark refutations of the leader's claim on the body and soul, as in cases of self-immolation, when people set themselves on fire, to draw attention to injustice. And these are a call to others, the ultimate call to others to do something about it. The Chilean Sebastián Acevedo set himself on fire in 1983 in front of the Cathedral of Concepción to protest his children's arrests by the junta and feared torture. And the street vendor Mohamed Bouazizi's 2010 self-immolation in front of a government building triggered was a trigger for Arab Spring. So these, these interventions on the body um, have been very important. Now, new media and other technologies, and, and Strongman is divided into three 
uh, historical eras, the fascist era, the age of military coups, and I'll have Pinochet and Gaddafi. And then I have the post-Cold War, what I call the new authoritarians. And uh, the chapter on resistance respects these differences. So you see what changes and what stays the same. So if we look at what new media, how, how is this, um, how has this influenced practices of resistance? So um, most obviously they try and block it. They try and use uh, you know, big tech uh, uh, against resistors. Putin blocked Zello in 2017, Erdogan banned Twitter and Facebook around the time of the Gezi Park protests in 2013. Nowadays, they also, uh, governments flood social media platforms with trolls and misinformation. They use digital infiltration to track dissidents at home and in exile. Um, and today's resistance collectives respond to this. They include coders and encryption specialists who find workarounds for government censorship. So it's much more fluid and fast moving in terms of how the use of technology response to it than of course it was in the past. They, resistors can access VPNs and adapt apps like Tinder, which Hong Kong protesters did this in 2019. They also used AirDrop. You know, there's no end to um, the innovation uh, that they will use to be able to communicate and organize. Now, social media can also help to, be, to overcome the cynicism and paralyzing fear that authoritarian leaders foster. And it has the benefit of uh, often through humor, uh, the power of laughter to, um, to boost the spirits and to um, get the attention of people who might not be reached with other kinds of messages. And social media by allowing things to go viral has hugely um, you know, helped this. So not that many Chileans may have seen this uh, mural in, from 1984 of Pinochet as a Nazi pig in the La Victoria neighborhood of Santiago. But these images of Gaddafi as a Nazi and uh, Putin wearing makeup, they went viral. Um, so new media helps resistors to organize and communicate with, uh, with each other in the world, building horizontal networks of information exchange and solidarity. Today's protesters use digital storytelling practices to confront and expose state repression. Such narratives gave momentum and, and focus and, and faces to the Arab Spring uprisings and brought attention, for example, to the plight of Russian activists during the government raids of 2019. So to give an example, uh, a classic moment in the history of resistance is when they're resistors at home. He has his documents, his, you know, his, his, his incriminating um, dossiers that he needs for his work and the police bang on the door or they knock on the door or they bang down the door. So in the past, we couldn't see this. We couldn't hear about it often uh, except from word of mouth and the public would often find out in memoirs, um, police would know in police reports, but now the dreaded knock on the door can be streamed on Twitter. And we are in the room with the dissident as the police break in. And this is uh, Lyubov uh, Sobol, uh, 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 an, an, an activist, an uh, anti-Putin activist. 
and she is making a video. Um, this is just Radio Free Europe's um, tweet of it, um, which you should you could go and find. It's very dramatic as the police break down the door, and then there's a, a picture of her being arrested outside. She's taken outside. And now we watch the resistor protect his documents and contacts in real time, as when Sergei Boyko, an activist and former mayoral candidate in Russia, tweeted an image and his friend made a video of, his, of a drone flying his hard drive out the window of his apartment as police banged on the door. So these create communities of solidarity in real time in a, in a way that traditional media couldn't really do. Um, so that those are very interesting examples. And as this was going on, these, these repressions, Putin decides to uh, show his machismo. I have a chapter on virility in the book uh, because it's, it's too easy to just laugh when Putin is burying his pectorals and he's you know, doing ice baths uh, with a shirt list, but it can be deadly. So Putin decides to attend a far-right motorcycle rally with a leather jacket at the same time. This is, you know, all part of the same thing. And Putin's body, like other strongmen, has been central to his display of masculine threat. And those, but those resisting strongmen, like Putin, have made their own bodies arms of resistance against him in the state. And I mentioned self-immolations, but there are also examples throughout the century of people sewing their mouth shut, uh, impoverished pensioners, dissident artists, political prisoners have sewn their mouths shut, gone on hunger strikes um, and done other things to and with their body to protest. And these became more um, frequent in Russia after 2011, 2012, because Putin cracked down after these mass protests I showed you an image of before. And in Russia, the Pussy Riot's collective, uh, artist, artistic collective performances in metro stations and churches in this period brought attention to misogyny as an integral part of Putin's orthodox church-backed rule. And one statement the group declared, Russia lacks political and gender emancipation, audacity, a feminist horsewhip, and a female president. So this is in these, these images, um, strongmen dose out their images of populist, of, of threatening male uh, in, and they are responding to resistance. So it's a kind of uh, feedback loop between the state and resistors. So I want to talk briefly about public art and Pussy Riot is one example in a history of public performance and art as a resistance tactic. In Pinochet's Chile, uh, the Colectivo Acciones de Arte, the CADA, was a very important group. They mixed uh, kind of performance art pieces with their most famous um, uh, artwork, so to speak, were, were these um, no, no mas. Um, and they made these posters and invited artists and eventually citizens to fill in uh, no mas, so this is no more death. And uh, during the mass protests that broke out in, uh, that developed in Pinochet's Chile in the 1980s, which were very, very important to the eventual ending of the dictatorship, uh, these uh, signs were everywhere filled in, you know, no more dictatorship, no more torture, here's, you know, no more shootings, executions. 
and no mas became a visual symbol of protest for the duration of the dictatorship. So that's one example. And public art and messaging can also boost morale in a dictatorship by proclaiming the existence of individuals who are, quote, refusing to accept the disinformation and lies, refusing to accept the abnormal as normal. And this is a quote from the Chilean graphic artist Guillo, who uh, made a caricature on the cover of a magazine in 1987 of Pinochet as Louis XIV. And, um, as has often happened in strongman states, there are versions of editor's laws that the Nazis pioneered where the editors take responsibility. Uh, they, so the editors were imprisoned, but Guillo was not for this. And there's a history of course, satire and humor uh, have, have played a very important role in resistance because uh, being laughed at is one of the things that strongmen most dread. And indeed going back to Russia, uh, the satires of Putin that were still possible in his first presidencies, such as this work by the Blue Noses Collective, and they've taken it's a you know collage, and they've taken the classic like youth group uh, photo and put, put everybody's Putin. So it's the classic strongman who's the everyman and the superman, and every man should want to be like Putin, but. Uh, that is not possible uh, anymore um, to do such satire. And as Putin has become less popular and more repressive, is way more sensitive to this kind of thing. And as of 2017, the year that the Putin in makeup came out, cartoons or other satires of Putin can be labeled as quote, extremist material. And um, so in fact, in 2019, there were even more laws that made those who quote, disrespect the state or government authorities on the internet liable for 15 days in jail. So it's become more difficult to uh, have the kinds of images we've seen so far. I also want to focus on in terms of public art, very interesting uh, projection artist, Robin Bell, who uh, throughout the Trump era, he projected uh, on in many places, government buildings like the EPA, uh, environmental Protection uh, Agency, but most commonly on the facade of the Trump International Hotel. And uh, this is from a May 9, 2017 action that read, you know, pay Trump bribes here. <laughs> and the projections uh, lasted, he said, I interviewed him uh, several times, uh, between two and 40 minutes, quote, depending on how fast Trump security reacts. And so it was not the DC police that would shut him down. It was Trump security and Trump hired, you know, all kinds of thugs uh, as his bodyguards and hotel security. And then, so they don't last very long sometimes but they take on a viral life. They take on life uh, online. And this is, this is another one uh, famously taking off of Trump's uh, delightful comment that African countries are shitholes. Um, and didn't want immigration from those countries. And so this is interesting because it shows the use of humor, the poop emojis. And, and you should look at it, go and look at it online because they, they float in this very um, whimsical manner. And, and so this is, these are pieces that are making a very strong points. They are reclaiming the, the space of 
this is a site of immense corruption and conflict of interest during the Trump presidency. So they're reclaiming it, uh, also throwing his words back at him and using humor to draw people in. So this is a very um, good example. Um, I'm, I'm starting in the next two weeks, I'm starting a newsletter um, and it'll be announced on my Twitter and Facebook. And I have a new interview with Robin Bell to talk about um, the legacy of four years of Trump and what's next and, and public art and resistance and all of that. Um, but in the first interview I did with him, he, he said that you know, tr Trump was not the, um, these were not aimed at Trump. He didn't care what Trump thought. They were for people. They were for uh, the public and to boost their spirits. And he said, they are quote, a visual reminder that what we are experiencing is not normal. And very similar to what Guia said, who, who was a survivor of Pinochet. He also sees them as a message of solidarity, quote, letting people know that we listen and we care. And so this kind of ethical, um, the, the sense of resistance as a, as a moral act uh, of care and compassion is important. So that brings me to my conclusion. Um, and it's, it's all too easy to uh, be in despair uh, with you know, the creeping authoritarianism and the conformity and disregard for human life uh, that marks strongmen rule. And so knowing the history of resistance is really important to, to, keep, to keep us going and know that time and again, people have risked their lives to, to keep alive the hope that a different society can be created. And part of the process, if the ruler has been there a long time, is rejecting the emotional training that these leaders give to encourage cruelty and discourage compassion. And I have a quote in my book, uh, which I, I really get it's very moving. I've read it a million times, but it's always new for me by the um, future filmmaker Alberto Latuada in Italy. He grew up into fascism. He's writing in 1941. So he's been living with Mussolini his whole life. One of, he was that generation. That's all they knew. And he did a, he did a book of photographs called, called Occhio Quadrato, which were of poor people, of suffering people. And it was, they were instantly banned. Um, but in the preface to it, he delivered a devastating diagnosis. Um, he writes, the absence of love brought many tragedies that might've been averted. Instead of the golden reign of love, a black cloak of indifference fell upon the people. And thus people have lost the eyes of love and can no longer see clearly. So this eyes of love is very important because resistance is also keeping alive a vision of the world. And he's a, he's a photographer and later became a filmmaker, but a, vi a different vision of humanity. And this eyes of love has, um, there's many uh, resistors today uh, operating who are espousing versions of this need for compassion and love and integrating them into their politics. So in the book, I have the example of Ekrem Imamoglu, who uh, was the opposition candidate in the race for mayor of Istanbul, 
which is a position Erdogan once held. And he had this strategy, he had this um, message of radical love. And he made it into a, a practice of politics, a vision of a different governance. So instead of having mass rallies that are socializing you into the leader, the, the vertical leader people, um, he walked the streets, engaging people, hugging them. Um, and he, his, one of his slogans is that we love um, those who love Erdogan. So it was an anti-polarization strategy, an anti-populist strategy. And instead of Erdogan's politics of survival and belligerence, he's always threatening to sue people, he's locking people up. His slogan was calming and optimistic. It was everything will be fine. So this was a real gamble in Erdogan's Turkey, but, um, and he won the race. Then the Erdogan allied election commission uh, invalidated it and made them do it again. And he won again with an even larger margin. So this is uh, a, good, a good close uh, where he's standing for hope. Um, and democracy needs heroes more than ever. And we don't, we, the media uh, globally does not do a good enough job of heroicizing and glamorizing even those who are uh, resisting. It's, it's perhaps villains are more clickworthy, um, but that is something that, um, that is necessary to, to inculcate and inspire others to, um, to go in their footsteps. And for example, those who denounce corruption, right? So the history of resistance is more important than ever today to keep hope and faith in humanity and support those who struggle for freedom in our own time. And you see these trajectories, everything that we go through has a history. And it's very moving to see how practices of resistance um, uh, have, you know, they, they come into the 21st century. And um, to highlight the stories of those who lived and died over a century of democracies, destruction and resurrection, our precious counsel for us today. So I'll stop there. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much, Ruth. That was a fascinating presentation, and I and I really liked your optimistic uh, conclusion uh, there. Of course, um, uh, this optimism is is not something that uh, uh, we have these days. Um, but of course, uh, coming from the North American and indeed the US perspective, I think there is good grounds for optimism there, especially because of the recent elections. Now, uh, we have some time for, for questions, um, uh, about 15 minutes, um, and uh, then we'll have to close. Um, and I can already see a number of questions there, so I'm just going to, to read them to you, Ruth, and then you will have some time to respond. Um, this one is from Emer O'Brien. Um, I like your point about horizontal relationships. Do you think misogynist intimidation, such as the shaving of women's heads by resistors during Nazi-occupied France and, and troubles era in Northern Ireland, one might add, of course, post-war Italy, uh, is a different use of horizontal relationships in suppressed society? Um. Yeah, I think that the episodes where um, where misogyny prevails over 
political belonging where um, women resistors, for example, weren't allowed to be in parades and uh, collaborators were treated differently with women, uh, you know, having their heads shaved. I think um, that's very, that's very significant. And it's, although women, I have a line in the book where women have been the strongman's enemy uh, as much as journalists and prosecutors. <laughs> um, and yet the history of their embrace and integration into resistance is, is um, spotty. So, so that's, that's a limitation and obviously, uh, you know, gender trumps uh, political identification on these things for sure. Okay, all right, thanks. Uh, next question is uh, from Saskia Kronenberg, um, a PhD student in Italian literature working on Gramsci. Um, she was wondering if you could say a little more about why white women are motivated to support strongmen uh, like uh, Machioki said, they want their own submission. What are your thoughts on the complicity of women? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, and we saw it most recently continuing with the white women being um, in America being uh, very avid supporters of Trump, you know, the super misogynist. Um, well, one of the things that strongmen do so well is to create these communities of belonging and uh, elevate those who are in, who are the right uh, you know, race often in this case. And it's very, very important that even on January 6th before the assault, the coup attempt um, at the rally, Trump said to the crowd, which was, uh, it was more male, but there were a lot of women there. I love you. You are special and our journey is just beginning together. So there's a whole history about this, making them feel loved and elevated. And how does this work with gender? That a white woman who's in the club is always considered, can consider herself uh, as superior to a non-white male. So that it's a way that women, especially in multiracial societies, but it worked in Nazi Germany too, they felt uh, ennobled and having more status. Um, and, and indeed, uh, a lot of organizations, uh, the right actually has been pretty good about mobilizing women and the future of the far right is partly female. I think we'll have a female-led authoritarian state. Women are in the States and in Europe, a lot of far, you know, women are quite prominent in the far right. Um, and so I don't think I, I know the the macchiacchi, the you know that they're kind of it's a kind of masochism, and of course that's that's part of a larger uh, conundrum of why do people vote against their interests by by following these people who clearly scorn them, which is broader than women. Uh, but I think that in, in the in terms of uh, strongmen who are are racist, which is almost all of them, and making these communities of inclusion with their rituals like a tribe. I think that this fact of women feeling superior to non-whites or whatever the configuration is in their country is important. Okay, thank you. Uh, moving on to our next question. Uh, it's by Galina Yakova. Uh, great presentation. What is your view on the role of foreign countries on the development of domestic resistance? Also in the context of the erosion of democracy and liberal values in the West, 
what is your view on modern censorship and the room for resistance in Western countries? Um, these are two separate questions. Right? Uh, well, this, this came as one question. Okay. Um, so to take the foreign countries and domestic, um, I mean, you know, there are times when, uh, I mean, most like foreign military action can give a huge boost to domestic uh, armed resistance, let's say. And it happened, of course, the resistance in Italy had was, was helped by the allies, right? And you had NATO strikes, which uh, came in uh, after the Green Revolution had started in Libya and kind of can, can play a decisive um, action. There are times when foreign organizations can um, choose to withhold support. And this is one of the, I, I haven't uh, read the whole uh, report uh, from Freedom House yet, but one of the things they're worried about is that, um, you know, activists are being less and less um, supported by foreign NGOs and foreign governments. And so this is, they're leaving them abandoned. And there, there are huge interests of money, um, of, you know, the whole apparatus of international law firms, PR firms, banks that props up a strongman is very much stacked. This is an apparatus that's stacked against um, the resistor. So, so that's, that's part of it. We'd have to go into individual cases to you know, answer that fully and we don't have the time, but it's a great, it's a great question. Okay, uh, thanks. We still have, uh, oh, well, the list is increasing. We might not have time to go through them all. Uh, all right, your focus is very much on the wide variety of inspiring forms of peaceful resistance. Is there a clear line between these and the use of violence? Very relevant question from Rory Montgomery. Um, is there a clear line? Um, yeah, I'm not sure there's uh, an absolute line because very often, and there are those, including uh, uh, Professor Apora, who are far more expert than I am in this, but, you know, there, there are gatherings that can become peaceful and then they uh, become not peaceful <laughs> often if uh, and there there that can occur because of uh, repression of uh, law and order um, which is partly can be um, can be part of a strategy to make uh, the, re the peaceful resistor non-peaceful there can also be infiltrators who are uh, plants designed to um, make things become violent and then you can have uh, grounds to punish them, label them as terrorists. You can get the footage you need to play on right-wing stations or state media. So in that sense, there's not a clear line. I think in intention and in uh, their people who are organizing mass nonviolent protests, they, they don't intend this to be anything but nonviolent protest. I don't know if that's what your question was getting at. Um, I also think the history of resistance is, is um, it can be clarifying on this where in Chile, for example, um, 
there were uh, communist-backed and socialist-backed militias that tried to assassinate Pinochet and they were doing explosions and other things. And over time, uh, the, this, this um, strategy of violence um, exhausted people and it turned people against more violence because they were already exhausted by the violence of the dictatorship, which uh, the more people did nonviolent protests, the more the dictatorship in the 80s became repressive. It's like a last ditch. And so over time, the appetite for a, a violent resolution diminished. And so the socialists began to um, collaborate with the Christian Democrats on a, an attempt to have a negotiated peaceful solution. So that's where the violence, um, it, it, there, there are phases for these things. And that's an interesting um, example of a kind of collective will of everyone and the communists were shut out uh, because they didn't want to renounce violence. Um, so, so that's interesting. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to uh, put two questions together because they are related to individuals and, and relatively simple questions. One uh, is from Jacques Hayden about Yaroslav Kaczynski and uh, what category would you put uh, Kaczynski in? Is he a strongman or does PIS do its authoritarian business differently? Uh, and a related question, well, not related question, but it's a similar type of question from Piotr Vichislik uh, uh, about Myanmar. Uh, and of course, uh, uh, the uh, famous case of Aung San Suu Kyi. Uh, and if there is a pattern of, of essentially an icon of, of resistance turning into an authoritarian figure. So how would you interpret her role? Um, I can't really, I, know, I don't really want to answer either of those questions because I can't really, I don't know enough about Kaczynski and um, about uh, Myanmar. Um, I mean, it is, it's not the first time that um, somebody who was an icon of resistance became uh, morphed into something different that many see as its opposite. And sometimes that's part of the logic of power, which I'm not saying that approvingly. Um, there's many instances in history of revolutionaries who then become repressive. Um, and when they decide to manage power in a certain way and, and um, or how do you keep the, the, the momentum of, of freedom fighting when you start to get influence? Um, and, and some people continue it one way and some people continue it the other way. And so she's an example of, of that. And that's about all I, I could say about that. All right, okay, thanks. Um, another question from Molly Kramer. Um, uh, who works in genocide studies and would uh, like to return to your discussion of non-action as resistance in some ways. Uh, and the question is, how do we separate resistant non-action from bystanders who, by their inaction, are actually lending support to their strongmen? Um. Yeah, that's uh, how do we separate them? How do we, are, is the question about how do we consider them morally? Is the question about how do we consider them operationally if we are in the resistance? Um, you know, um, 
I guess I need to know more about what we're supposed to be doing. I mean, there's a huge literature obviously on the bystanders. Um, I think that what I try to do in my book is, is unpack. Um, so I have this like toolkit of rule and I wanted to show how the tools of violence, the tool of violence works together with corruption, with virility, with propaganda. So that, for example, um, part of propaganda and also buy, you know, buyouts or buy-ins um, make people feel that participating in violence or not opposing it is worthwhile. So that the violence has, it works together with all these other things in make and having people make their choices. But certainly I think uh, the, the issue of remaining a bystander and remaining silent um, is the very essence of what authoritarians depend on. They, they have to have these bystanders. I, I did something in my um, book where I, I wanted to go, it's very unfortunate that um, when we Google uh, Italian fascism or other regimes, we often see still these images of the leader in the crowd. And then if we think of rallies, we see the regime's own images of a cheering rally. So what I did, um, I did it for an article and then in the book, I kind of went into the newsreel, which has a soundtrack of cheering overlaid, you know, after it's post-synchronized. And I isolated some frames into the crowd. And I looked and none of those people were cheering. They were just standing there. Um, kind of in a bystander way. They were, their faces were absolutely neutral. Maybe they, some of them seem to be looking straight at the camera. So this is the regime's camera in Italian fascism. This was a rally celebrating the um, invasion of Ethiopia, announcing it. So they were completely neutral. And yet um, there, unless you do that work of isolating the frames and showing that their mouths were all closed, they were not cheering, if you just Google and you have a superficial, you would never know that these were remaining neutral. They were swept up in the cheering crowd that gave consent, right? So I think this kind of work is also important to, um, to, find, to kind of investigate how many people were bystanders in a way, right? Um, I think that there's, there's much more to be done uh, often from um, the bottom up and with visuals to, to think about what did it mean to be categorized as somebody who went to a rally, but actually was just standing there with their mouth closed. So. Yeah, I, th I think we reached the, the, the very exciting gray zone there where it is very yeah. difficult to, to make a differentiation between the resistance and collaboration and indifference is that, that specific aspect of the gray zone, which could contribute to the stabilization of the regime, but it could also subvert uh, the regime and erode its, its symbolic pillars at the same time. So these are, these are those exciting aspects of, of resistance and collaboration uh, that I'm personally uh, interested in. Uh, but we don't have time for more questions, unfortunately. I could, uh, I could listen to you answering them for hours. Uh, but thank you very much again for, for, for the lecture and thank you all for your great questions and, and uh, apologies 
Uh, for those who, whose questions have not been read, feel free to get in touch with us and, and, and indeed Ruth and, uh, mm -hmm. yeah, and I'm, I'm sure she'll be happy to, to respond to those questions as well. And with that, I would like to uh, thank you for your attention and would pass it on to or back actually to, to Eve Patton, the director of the Long Room Hub. Well, thanks, Balaj. And I, I'm looking at the number of questions coming in and the quality of those questions. It, it's very clear that this subject is creating a real opportunity for people to have important conversations. Uh, so I think we, we look forward to those conversations in the future. And I, I hope for everyone listening uh, that even through the Zoom screen, uh, some of the excitement surrounding this, uh, this evening's event has come through to you. And I know that you will also have appreciated the genuine sense of purpose that Balaj and his colleagues have brought to the Center for Resistance Studies in the planning of it, in the design and the strategy of what they want to do. So I want to uh, just draw to a close by congratulating you, Balaj, again, and congratulating all your colleagues in the new center. Uh, I want to thank Vice Provost Jürgen Barkov uh, for uh, joining us uh, for this event. And particularly, uh, I'd like to thank you, Ruth, uh, Ruth Ben-Giat, who's been with us and given us such a pertinent, such a brilliantly illustrated view of the strongman landscape. And, and thank you also, Ruth, for answering the questions with such generosity. I hope that you will come back or come to Trinity in real life uh, very soon uh, to, uh, to talk to us again. Uh, we will draw to a close. My thanks, as always, to Francesca O'Rafferty, Aoife King, and the Trinity Long Room Hub team who've helped to put this event together. Uh, the Trinity Long Room Hub website will keep you all updated on the Centre for Resistance Studies and on uh, our other activities. So do uh, keep it in mind. We hope to see you again soon. Thank you, everyone, for joining us today. The Hub is a community. Manuscript, book and print cultures, stamping provenance towards the history of the Taimonia Library. As well as being heard. The Hub is a space. Contemplating Ireland through the communities created by Coral The Hub is about impact. The Hub is for everyone. Here's to the next 10 years.